friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm very happy to record this first show of 2022. I have great hopes for this year. I'm always full of hope, but I have especially high hopes for this year because, you know, 2021 was a little difficult and so was 2020, but we have a lot to look forward to. We have always the hope that enervates us all the time, the hope of uh, greater greater things, the hope uh, that is not centered on things here. So with that hope... Nothing else matters, right? So 2022 is going to be a very great year. So for this first show of this year, we have with us Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. That's an amazing organization that I happen to be a part of, even though I'm not an OBGYN, I'm a radiologist. We're going to talk to her about chemical abortion, which there was a great shift in chemical abortion in December when the FDA got rid of the, the, the special regulations around Mifeprex, the drug involved in chemical abortion, a drug which is very dangerous. And uh, due to political pressures, the FDA has gotten rid of the special regulations around it that were put in place to keep women safe, although never children, of course, because chemical abortion always results in a dead baby. Before Dr. Donna Harrison, first we have my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, as co-hostess. She and I are going to cover some very important stories that really do deserve our attention, including especially the devastating impact that the COVID pandemic lockdowns is having on our children, the masking and the closure of schools, and the way that this is all re-happening again with uh, this new Omicron variant. We dig into the details of the detrimental impact this is having on our on our dear children, all in the name of health and safety. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. It's good to be with you. Thank you for co-hosting with me on this uh, first radio show and podcast of 2022. I have high hopes for 2022. I'm thinking it's going to be a fabulous year. What about you? I think so, and I hope so. I just know that it's been such a challenging couple of years for so many people, and so I I sort of share your optimism that hopefully we can sort of move past everything with this pandemic and and get a fresh start in in this new year. You know, I think it's a little too optimistic to think we're going to move past the pandemic, but I do feel optimistic about it becoming something that's endemic, the virus, and something that we can learn to live with. I feel that in the past year or two, we haven't in general done a very good job of living with COVID in a way that doesn't exacerbate all the other side effects of COVID besides the the people in the hospitals and and the deaths. I mean, there's a lot of other side effects. And I think we're managing, we're not managing some of those very well. And I know one of these you're very passionate about, which is the effect of lockdowns on children and the way that children are being treated as, as far as their schooling. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of amazing to think that we really are on year two. I mean, it's just 
we're weeks away from the two-year mark of when I got the email from my kid's school saying, you know, we're closing down for the next week. And I remember thinking just then that one week of the kids being out of school uh, so unexpectedly seemed crazy, but I thought, well, we can get through this. And then, you know, for, for my family, a week turned into several months and then the summer, um, but my kids have been blessed to be at a Catholic school uh, that I've written about um, in, in many outlets that, like so many other incredible Catholic schools, um, reopened in the fall of 2020. And, you know, here we are in the beginning of 2022, and my kids' school has not once had to closed down because of COVID. The teachers and the principal have just done this extraordinary job of of pushing forward. And, you know, the same just can't be said of, of the public schools. I mean, so many kids in public schools weren't even in school for almost an entire calendar year. And, and now they're routinely closing down for any and every reason. And, and it's really tragic to think of all those kids who've had two years of their lives and of education lost. Let me let me read you a, a, a small section from a piece in the New York Times that came out in the last couple of days. It says, children fell far behind in school during the first year of the pandemic and have not caught up. Among third through eighth graders, math and reading levels were all lower than normal this fall, according to NWEA, a research group. The shortfalls were largest for black and Hispanic students, as well as students in schools with high poverty rates. Now, that this does not surprise me at all, because the months that my own children were home, uh, which were also short because my children also go to Catholic schools, they, I, I, I was amazed <laughs> that, that they were trying to do long distance learning, this remote learning. It, it sort of worked in a sense for the, my older children who are in, at that point middle school and high school. On the other hand, it didn't because even though they were, they were able to learn some material um, socially, they were completely obviously separated from their peers. And in the case of one of my children, this was rather damaging. But then I, I stop and think, well, what about the families where for all the various social reasons, there aren't a parent uh, or two on top of the children, you know, do this and do that and directing and making sure the television, the, the video conferencing, conferencing is on. Also young children, what ability do young children have to look at a screen for hours at a time and actually learn anything? So I'm not at all surprised at these findings that the New York Times is highlighting. No, and, you know, and we've reached a point where I feel like all these articles about the damage of virtual schooling um, for kids, especially low-income kids, it just feels like navel-gazing. You know, this wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. You know, we had the example of Catholic schools um, to show that it was safe for kids to go to school. And again, the teachers at these schools were so brave. I mean, they went when there was no vaccine, um, where... You know, they didn't know if they caught the virus, what their outcome was going to be. Um, and they they sort of pushed forward and and showed how truly committed to education they are, um, that Catholic schools are. Isn't but, it true? You know, isn't it true, Ashley, that a lot of these teachers who teach in our parochial schools, especially, they turn down jobs in public schooling? that are much more lucrative and have much better benefits. And, and still, they prefer to teach at Catholic schools. Yeah. In fact, one of my daughter's teachers left a very high-performing charter school because they were plagued by the same problems as many of these other public schools because she wanted to be in the classroom with her students. And I, I loved it when they had the parent-teacher conferences in the fall. Um, the school basically said, 
will give you the option of virtual, but the teachers would strongly prefer to do them in person. And, you know, I think we've reached a point, back to your earlier point, that we've reached a point where we've people are so tired and exhausted of all the, you know, virtual this, the cancellations, that we're just kind of, we've reached the point where we have to push forward. And especially, again, for the sake of the kids, because it's not just about, you know, what are their test scores and are they up to snuff on, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But it's about the sort of psychological and emotional component. Kids, you know, kids have a right to a childhood. And that and that involves just being with friends and, and playing and having unstructured time at the playground. And, you know, it just breaks my heart again when I, when I you know, hear about kids who haven't interacted socially with other kids for like two years or, you know, who you know, still have to go to the playground and social distance and wear a wear a mask outside. But, you know, we're digressing. But there really is a, a mental health crisis for America's children. And I think a lot of that uh, blame falls on the shoulders of the teachers unions who exploited this crisis for their own gain, continue to exploit it and are, you know, watching as the public schools are basically in free fall. I mean, they can barely find enough school bus drivers. Uh, many of these schools aren't even in session five full days a week anymore. Um, and I think, you know, the teachers unions bear a lot of that blame because, uh, you know, whereas, you know, educators in, in parochial schools like ours saw the opportunity and walked into the storm and took risk for the sake of the children, the, pub, the public school teacher teachers unions did the opposite and exploited the crisis and continued to exploit it um, on the backs of of children. And and I'm sorry, but, you know, it's it's time to stop writing articles about it and to actually do something about it. You know, to your point on the mental health issues uh, from again from The New York Times. Uh, three medical groups, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, recently declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health. They cited, quote, dramatic increases in emergency department visits for all mental health emergencies. You know, any visit with your child for a mental health emergency is a tragedy. I mean, just one visit is a tragedy. I mean, think what that means. A child that is so depressed, so anxious, that the that the parent feels the need to bring you know, their child to an emergency room. That's a very serious thing. And this, if children are suffering in their mental health from being taken away from all their normal activities of life and p being put in masks, which I think is very uh, psychologically damaging as well, what kind of mental illness is causing adults to do this? Because I think, um, and, you know, tell me what you think, Ashley. I think that there is this uh, terrible desire um, for total safety that people, total physical safety, um, that people have uh, decided they can achieve somehow by sacrificing the children, by by sacrificing their, their contacts with family. Um, and it, that's some kind of mental illness that we're sort of all suffering from collectively. Yeah, we certainly, there has been sort of an irrational um, component to all of this where, you know, this idea that um, we can't live normal lives unless there's no COVID, which we've basically known from the beginning is, is not really going to be possible. Um, it was about, you know, not overwhelming the, the healthcare systems. But, you know, again, yeah, I just think it's it's sort of a reflection of a bigger problem in our culture, which is that we approach things without thinking or reflecting for one moment about the effects on children, whether it's it's 
gender ideology and personal expressionism or, or, you know, sexual liberation movements. I mean, there's just no, you know, or the rampant divorce. It's just, it's, it's like we have sort of a, a culture of, of narcissism and hyper individualism and the victims in that culture are vulnerable children who, who need a communal approach um, and who frankly need their, uh, needs to be put first. And, you know, I think in terms of the pandemic, it's so tragic to me that, you know, the two uh, groups in our society that were hurt the most by this pandemic were the elderly and children, you know, which which gets to something Pope Francis has repeatedly talked about, which is, you know, the way that we neglect the most vulnerable in our communities. But, you know, I think that all that the pandemic has done is highlight a little we care about the vulnerable and how our society is set up in a way that unfortunately um, benefits the strong at, at the expense of the weak. Um, and and the single best thing that I think, you know, people can do to protect children in this pandemic is not to put an N95 mask on them at the playground, but to protect their innocence and to and to protect you know, their childhood, because it would be different if this were like polio or something where children were being seriously maimed and um, at severe risk of, of, of death and loss of life and limb. Um, but we've known from very early on that, you know, thankfully, the children are sort of spared from the worst of this disease. And so, unfortunately, now, as you point out, what they're not being spared from is the sort of extreme mental health toll that this is taking on everyone, but especially children who don't have the 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 tools and capacity to process what's going on in the way that mature adults do. If you're just joining us, I'm having a great conversation with my co-hostess and colleague, Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association. Ashley, you make some some very good points about the way that we as a society sacrifice the lives of children. Um, I can, and I think I can say that in the case of abortion, um, the lives of children and now the mental health and the, and the psychological the mental health and the moral health of, of children um, in order to, you know, pursue our own adult goals. And and yes, and I think you also make a good point that it's not just children, it's all the vulnerable, right? Because we, it, it is a society built to, you know, to put, we put on a pedestal the, the, the young, the free, the, the powerful, the strong, and everything that doesn't measure up to that we we don't take good care of uh instead we completely disregard their needs right and in the case of of children when we do take care of children you know we we think oh we're going to put them in a mask and in a helmet and we're going to keep them safe from physical harms uh, whether covid or other things but we don't think a lot about their moral safety or their psychological safety no and you know i alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but there's been this spate of articles recently about families breaking up as a result of the emotional strain of the pandemic. But this kind of like weird sort of, I, I feel so liberated from my family tone to a lot of these articles. Um, and again, it's it's just a different sort of strain, if you will, of, of this idea that, you know, it's a, it's me 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 I come first because there's there's like no discussion in in so many of these articles there was a big long one in the um, in the Atlantic recently I just read another one in, in Bon Appetit magazine of all places um, I I just keep reading these articles uh, and many of them frankly are written by women who were so upset that they you know the 
the toll of the pandemic fell on them to oversee the virtual schooling and all the home stuff and the work, you know, the professional work. Um, but no, virtually no discussion of of the the toll that that takes on children of divorce, of breaking up families. So and wait, Ashley, so you're describing articles where women describe their own um, their own divorce uh, and the breakup of their families as a moment of liberation. Is that how, how, how this is coming across yeah. to you? Yeah, like an empowering, like almost a feminist choice. And in some respects, that's sort of not old. I mean, the you know second wave feminists framed divorce as an empowering. Uh, well, actually, interestingly, originally they framed divorce as something that was empowering for women. And now decades later, when we've seen that um, no fault divorce disproportionately economically and emotionally harms women, they've sort of changed their tune. But, you know, how do we roll back our divorce laws? That's a different, that's a different conversation. But, you know, like we know the statistical, you know, all the statistics are out there about what divorce does to children. And yet, instead of trying to reflect on what can we do as a society to help try to keep more families intact and together, it's just articles about, here's my liberation story, leaving my family because I couldn't cope with the pandemic any longer. And and again, the children and often the other spouse are just kind of these like emotionless ornaments in the piece. And I find it to be very strange that, I don't know, maybe people are so emotionally numb that they can't even think or talk about, you know, the effects of this on other people. But I do think that you know, it gets to this idea that we were talking about, which is people seem to have a hard time thinking about more than just themselves. And, and the groups that bear the cost of that are the most vulnerable groups, and especially children. You know, interestingly, though, I, I did read that piece in The Atlantic, and the woman writing, um, had, she wrote a lot about the fact that they, she was re- they were remodeling a house and how mm-hmm. difficult that was and how much she hated housework. Uh, she, she referred to, she said she loved her husband, but she could no longer imagine a life with him, which is a very strange way to put it. Um, but, you know, it's true that she she demolished her husband. She, it was called Demolishing demolishing My Life, I think was the name yeah. of the article. But she said, of course, she was demolishing her husband's life and she was demolishing her children's lives. But women like this are also demolishing their own lives in, in very um, in very significant ways even like as you mentioned economically um the terrible toll of of now having to have two households where you had one before right paying two rents and and having to uh, take care of the children separately which adds a whole other um you know complication to to what's already a difficult life when you're raising kids and juggling all that um why are people why are women suddenly being you know given these celebratory uh, articles to read where all of these drawbacks are 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 worth it just because you you don't you can't take the time to imagine a life with your husband i i don't i don't really know that i i can even pretend to understand um but i find it so tragic uh maybe it's sort of a, a lack of imagination I'm not. I'm not sure, but it it just fills me with such sadness because I think you know. I, I read this again. I've read so many of these different articles in the last week. There was another one in the New York Times where you know the author, I think, of the New York Times article about you know leaving her family, uh, basically said you know it used to be a stigmatized thing 
a husband or a wife leaving the family, breaking up the family. Thankfully, you know, now that stigma has been reduced and we've reached a point where it's, you know, almost like, you know, celebrating the fact that this has become more mainstream. And I think that's really, I mean, very reflective of where we are as a culture and a society, but also very tragic and disturbing. Again, because at the same time, we know with more sort of scientific precision and accuracy than ever in the history of mankind, how damaging this is, the breakup of families for all parties involved, but again, especially for the children. And for society as a whole, right? You right. know, in, in we are now, we're, we're sort of approaching maximum liberalism, right? And, and as, mm-hmm. a, as a philosophy of life where, where nothing can bind us, where every single thing that ties us down is onerous to us. And I think about that when I think about transgenderism and the way that even our biology is too much for us. Like we cannot even be bound by the chromosomes, the sex chromosomes in our DNA. Like we want everything to be malleable and changeable and and up to us to decide on a day by day basis. So maybe this this new idea of how liberating it is to break up your family and the way it's being celebrated um, has to do with that kind of maximum liberalism. Yeah, I, or, or late stage liberalism. We are in like a late stage something. It sort of feels yeah, like, it feels late, like. <laughs> late stage feminism, late stage capitalism. Um, I, I'm feeling you know. it's more like apocalyptic, <laughs> apocalyptic stages. Like it was sort yeah. of the end of the world kind of um, liberalism and feminism. But, it, you know, I do think that it's, you are hearing some calls for a return, rightfully so, to, a, a, you know, a, Restoring the concept of obligation. What do we owe to each other? I mean, this this was a big theme in, in Carter Sneed's book. Um, and, you know, other writers like Yuval Levin have written about this, this idea. And, and it's profoundly Catholic. I mean, it's, I think it was uh, Richard Newhouse who said, you know, freedom isn't the right to do what you want. It's the right to do what you ought. What, what do we owe to God? What do we owe to our family? What do we owe to our country? What do we owe to the most vulnerable of us? And we we so desperately need to reframe our thinking in this country. And that doesn't mean, you know, obliterating, you know, free market capitalism. It doesn't mean obliterating democracy. In fact, I think they, they both rely on this sort of a sense of moral obligation because without them, they fall apart. And that's what it feels like is happening um, is everything's falling apart because the thing that holds up our system of life, we've lost it. And so we have to recover it and restore it. And again, it's this idea of what is it that we owe to each other and, and thinking about things that way instead of how can I maximize my complete freedom and pleasure with no regard to anybody or anything, including, you know, the closest people in my life, my own children. I, I'm sure you follow this to some to some extent, but uh, Jordan Peterson is someone who um, has a lot of success speaking about these things to young people. And he yeah. describes uh, young men especially feeling very alienated in a world that demands nothing of them, but that they right. that that but that they pursue their own pleasure. And he suggests to them, from a completely non-religious perspective, he suggests to them 
that life is a can be a great romantic adventure where he, they can be a hero, right? And they can and they can find these noble and and really elevated um, goals that they can follow and 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 find and 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 actually risk great things. Sort of the mythic, the great mythic heroes and. And all of that, of course, has to do with their duties, um, you know, assuming responsibility, wanting more responsibility, giving more, being more part of beautiful relationships where they're the ones who, who sacrifice and save. Um, how beautiful that is, right? Even just to look at it from sort of a psychological perspective, the way he does it, um, to say human beings are so capable, they're capable of so much. And when they are living at their maximum potential like that, they are happy and flourishing, not what we're what the culture is offering them now, which is sort of this gray bland existence of nothing much. Right. No, it's true. It's it's and the reason that this is also important is because this is how we were designed. As you point out, we were designed to be together and to serve each other and i think like even jesus coming to earth as a human to show us how to live that in a physically human way that that life of service and and heroism is such an important part of the christian story but you know just anecdotally my daughter has been reading um, the Greek myths lately, and it's been amazing to see how how animated she is by them. Just the stories of of heroism, but but then again, to go back to Carter's book, like physically, even you know, physically, we are meant to be relational beings. You know, we're, and this kind of ties us back to the beginning of the you know what we were first talking about with the pandemic. Like we were meant to hug each other and embrace each other and be in person. And you know, when you see kids that are afraid to give hugs or even get too close to other people because they've been so disturbed by all the fear about the virus that doesn't really even apply to them. Um, it's very tragic. And I think it's going to take a lot of work to um, not just for children, but for all of us to be able to uh, come back to a point where we feel comfortable being our own selves in our own bodies as we were meant to be, which is, is relational and together in 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 love. Mm-hmm. Well, those are great words to end on, Ashley. And I hope that all our listeners, um, like us, are feeling hopeful of, of about twenty twenty two, and and looking forward to ways in which we can, um, you know, fix fix the mistakes of the last couple of years, and and help each other through through what what we hope will be a better year ahead of us. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Now we have with us Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, a wonderful organization that I am very proud to be a member of, although I'm not an OBGYN, I'm a radiologist. 
We wanted to talk to Dr. Harrison about the recent relaxation of guidelines associated with Mifeprex by the FDA. This is something that's uh, politically, um, this is a political move by the FDA, sadly. To her, she happens to be an expert on the on chemical abortion and its relationship to the FDA. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. You know, it was in about mid-December, and I have to admit, I wasn't paying a lot of attention because uh, Christmas was rapidly approaching, but something happened that was very big in the, the landscape of, of America's relationship to um, abortion, um, and especially affecting people like you, Dr. Harrison, who are on OBGYN and your relationship with your patients. And that is the big changes from the Federal Drug Administration on their regulations on chemical abortion. So I thought maybe um, you would do us the favor to walk us through what a chemical abortion is, why the FDA for so many years felt that it was necessary to heavily regulate this drug, and what, the, what, has, been, what has changed and why you think that's a problem. Well, thanks. That's an interesting story. Um, so I will start from the beginning because I followed the chemical abortion approval process since 1994, since the application was actually first made. And what the situation with the Mifeprex approval, Mifeprex is a drug that blocks a natural hormone in a woman's body that allows her to carry a baby. That's called progesterone. So Mifeprex, Mifepristone, blocks that action of progesterone in a woman's body. And just as an aside, if you have taken Mifeprex and you change your mind about having an abortion, if you can get enough natural progesterone in your body within 72 hours, you can reverse, you can help reverse the effects of Mifepristone so that you can increase the chances that your baby will survive. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we said that. Before <laughs> no, that's important public information. That's, important. that's very important information because a lot of women, um, after they take that first pill of a, of a, of a, of a process, them, and sometimes as soon as they're diagnosed uh, as being pregnant, the, that first pill is being pressed upon them uh, in right. places like Planned Parenthood. And very many times women um, take, take the first pill. I've, this is, I know this because I've talked to women who, who, had this experience and by the time they get home they've thought better of it maybe they find at home that there's a lot of support for the new baby that's come along that they didn't expect yeah. a lot yeah. of personal support for them a lot of love maybe from their husband or their boyfriend <laughs> yeah and, and then they say what have I done so thank you for um, reminding our listeners that abortion pill reversal is a real thing it sometimes works and it's certainly worth trying if a woman changes her mind you're right good well, I wanted to make sure that women knew that uh, because it has to do with what you're talking about, the relaxation of the control on uh, Mifeprex, on the abortion drug. So when the abortion drug was first approved, which is a whole other story in itself, um, the FDA did require the manufacturer to do certain things, which later became known as the REMS, Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. The reason that the FDA did that was to try to do what they could to mitigate, to, to lessen the risk of what is actually a dangerous drug. I mean, messing with a woman's hormones is dangerous in and of itself. But when you talk about ending a natural process, and by the way, Mifeprex doesn't treat any disease. All it does is end a pregnancy, and pregnancy is not a disease. Mm -hmm. Pregnancy is a natural process. So you've got a drug that's interfering with a natural process and also interfering with hormones all over the woman's body, any place that has receptors like her brain, her ovaries, her breasts. It's a dangerous drug. 
And what the FDA was attempting to do was to try to put some control on that drug and how it was used in order to try to mitigate, try to lessen some of the risk. And and Dr. Now, Harrison, um, maybe you were going to mention this already, but I don't want it to pass by unnoticed that the there are many drugs that are um, treated like this by the FDA. Drugs that have uh, particular ways that m they must be used or else they're very dangerous and unsafe. Well, that's right. And, and not many. I mean, compared to all the drugs that are approved, there's only a small fraction that are considered dangerous. And Mifeprex is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the FDA recognized that. So, What we have uh, is, the, and most people don't realize this, but the FDA is under the Department of HHS, Health and Human Services. And Health and Human Services is under the administration. So whatever administration is reigning um, is who HHS answers to, and whoever leads HHS is who FDA answers to. Mm -hmm. So in the very approval of the drug at the very beginning, the Clinton administration is the one who, who contacted the drug manufacturer to bring Mifeprex to the United States. And they said, we're not going to do that because we're afraid of the risks with the drug. And uh, so what And the you mean, drug probably you mean legally afraid, right? Like they didn't want to be sued. Legally afraid, exactly. Exactly. They didn't want to be sued. So the drug manufacturer in France ended up giving the right to manufacture and distribute Mifeprex to Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Is that so? Uh, population, Yes. And so Planned Parenthood Federation of America Population Council didn't want the legal risk either. So they created a shell company called Danco, which has assets in the Cayman Islands, so they can't be sued. And uh, yeah, and that's who manufactures and distributes. Well, Danco doesn't manufacture anything, so Danco contracted with Walling Pharmaceuticals in China, who at that time was under sanction by the FDA for faulty drug manufacturing practices. But that's the that's the sort of the dirty underside of Mifeprex and its approval process. You know, Dr. Harrison, I've really looked into Mifeprex. I've written several pieces on it. I've discussed it at length, and I did not know this backstory. I'm so glad that you, you told me this and our listeners. That's fascinating and so ugly. Yeah, it's kind of ugly. <laughs> well, and especially when you look at who's trying to take the restrictions off of Mifeprex, it's the very people that are financially profiting from Mifeprex. It's, it's the abortion industry. You know, I called it, uh, I called Planned Parenthood one day a couple years ago, my local Planned Parenthood, the little clinic. They were charging the exact same price for a medication abortion, which basically is handing a woman two pills to put in her mouth. As for a surgical abortion, which, you know, takes all sorts of manpower and, and, and the whole thing that goes with a, with a surgical procedure, all of yeah. the material, um, and, you know, that, that costs a lot of money for Planned Parenthood to, to put on. <laughs> they charge very well for it, but they were charging the same amount for chemical abortion. So just to point out that Planned Parenthood is, uh, stands to make a lot of money by uh, switching from surgical to chemical abortion. You're right. It's a lot cheaper to have a nurse practitioner or even a nurse hand out this medicine mm -hmm. than to have a doctor. And that is part of what our recent research has shown is that the complications, when a woman has a complication from Mifeprex abortion, it's, it's less than half of the time the abortionist is the one who handles the complication. Most of the time, women go to the ER and the ER doctor who knows who doesn't have their medical record who may or may not even know that they had a surgical abortion or a medical abortion, excuse me, is the one who's managing. And this is really shoddy medical care. You wouldn't get away with that in any other area of OBGYN except abortion. 
Wow. In it's any so other true. area, a doctor has to take responsibility for the procedures that they start and they have to oversee the management of the complications, but not with abortion. So tell so, us, tell us, Dr. Harrison, what kind of complications are we afraid of with chemical abortion and how did the, the REMS or these uh, risk um, strategies by the FDA seek to remedy or, or avoid these complications? Okay, so the original FDA requirement was that the, the woman would have to have a physical exam in a doctor's office and be given the first drug in the doctor's office after the physical exam. And this and this and then the woman would have to come in two days later to find out if she even needed the second drug. And if she needed it, give the drug, be given the drug in the doctor's office. Okay. So that's the, called the two-person visit. Okay. Okay. So she had to be there personally evaluated by a physician for both parts of the chemical abortion. Yes. That was the original requirement. Now, the purpose of the first visit was because there's five concerns if you don't see a woman. One is you don't know exactly how far along that person is. So we know that if a woman takes Mifeprex and she's seven weeks pregnant, she's got about a 95% chance that the baby will abort. But if she takes it and she's 13 weeks pregnant or 14 weeks pregnant, she's got about a one out of three chance that she's going to have to have surgery, emergency surgery for hemorrhaging. (laughs) So it's really important to know how far along she is in order to give her informed consent. You, that has to be done by an ultrasound at that early gestational age. And, so and, an- and I, I want to explain to our listeners from my own personal experience as a radiologist, and I do feed a lot of fetal ultrasound, many women, especially young women, have no idea how pregnant they are. This is, I would almost say, more common than not. How many weeks? Yes. Women do not know how many weeks pregnant very often they are. That's that's correct. And multiple studies have shown that about 50% of women have to have their due date changed based on an ultrasound. And in fact, even ACOG, as pro-abortion as they are, have a practice bulletin and consider anyone that hasn't had an ultrasound in the first trimester to be inadequately dated for their pregnancy. So it's an important issue. And by by the FDA now allowing women to get drugs in the mail without ever having a physical exam, that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue, especially the risks. But the second important thing is to make sure that the child's actually in her uterus, because we've got about 2%, maybe one out of 50, maybe a little higher of women who have the baby implanted in their tube and not in their uterus. So when the, when the pregnancy is implanted in the tube, Mifeprex doesn't treat it. And what happens is the woman starts to experience pain and bleeding. And she calls the abortionist and they say, honey, that's a normal part of the Mifeprex process. Lay down and take Tylenol. And many women have died from misdiagnosed ectopic pregnancy because the symptoms of a, a Mifeprex abortion, pain and bleeding, are the exact same symptoms as uh, the uh, a rupturing ectopic pregnancy. And how deadly is a ruptured ectopic pregnancy? It's very deadly because you can lose your entire blood volume in the space of just a few minutes. And that means hemorrhaging inside. So you die from internal hemorrhaging. I have a sister-in-law who recently went through this, an ectopic pregnancy, naturally, naturally occurring, a miscarriage. And she was very close to death. And and it took her many, many weeks to recover because of the terrible loss of blood volume. It was about the most shocking and traumatic thing that our family has gone through. Yes, it's terrible. And it it, it is still a prominent cause of death in women that are pregnant. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're very blessed to have uh, Dr. Harrison with us, Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Dr. Harrison is walking us through chemical abortion, why the FDA, the FDA uh, for many years was, was protecting women who took this drug by extra cautionary regulations, um, and, and now why the FDA is taking them away and what the dangers are. So um, last month in December, the FDA succumbed to political pressure. I'm sure you agree with me, Dr. Harrison, that there was no medical reason to lift the extra precautions on Metroprex. I agree with you. Yes, I agree with you. And so they succumbed to political pressure, and now the drugs are very unregulated. So tell us just how unregulated this dangerous drug is. So currently, there's over 70 different websites where a person can go online and order this drug. And there's no check of how far pregnant she is. There's no check of whether or not the pregnancy is in her uterus. There isn't even a check of whether it's actually the person going to take the Mifeprex. So there's been over, uh, there have been at least three stories covered by national press of men who bought Mifeprex and gave the Mifeprex to their uh, unsuspecting girlfriend to make them miscarry. It's essentially a forced abortion. You and know, I recently had to order some vet, some veterinary medicines for my dog online. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. very difficult, Dr. Harrison. They, oh. <laughs> they made me jump through hoops. I had to get a prescription. I had to, I practically had to send them, you know, proof of, of, uh, I don't know, of, of my dog, of pictures of the dog, pictures of the vet, pictures. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot easier to buy Mifeprex, which ends the life of a child and may end the life of a woman online right. than veterinary drugs, I suppose. Yes, that's correct. And, and there's no regulation to it. The FDA has not done what it would have done in any other circumstance where a, a dangerous medicine is being used um, in dangerous ways, the FDA would have pulled the drug. So it's but basically FDA, now without it's it's without prescription like Tylenol, basically. You still have to have a prescription if well, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> the the fact is that you can order it online without any kind of a prescription. Okay. You, you can't you can do that. It's possible. That's not what the FDA has approved. The FDA has approved the uh, dispensing online by abortion clinics. They've approved telemedicine dispensing without a visit. That's dangerous. Um, But it it has been possible to get abortion drugs online, which is also really dangerous. And are those websites violating FDA rules and the FDA is looking the other way? Absolutely. They're completely violating FDA rules and the FDA has no way to regulate them. So when a dangerous drug is being used in dangerous ways and women are being harmed, the FDA should have pulled the drug. And in any other circumstance, they would have pulled the drug. I mean, you you know of FDA um, pulling drugs for lesser complications than what Mifeprex has resulted in. We, we did a study of all of the adverse event reports that were submitted to the FDA. There's 3,000 severe or life-threatening or deaths, uh, adverse event reports submitted to the FDA. And that's just what the FDA shared with us. We've subsequently found out that the FDA had almost double that number and they only shared half of the adverse event reports that we requested by FOIA, by Freedom of Information Act. What about the We've age always, of what about the age of the patient? What does the FDA say about girls accessing this drug? 
it's it's allowed at any gestational age. The FDA has not put a gestational age requirement. And in fact, in their original approval, without any explanation, they waived the requirement for pediatric testing. Really? So, yes. So there's no uh, gestational I'm sorry, gestational age. You ask gestational age and I answered the age of the patient. The gestational age requirement, the FDA changed from seven weeks or less. And then in 2016, they allowed it up to 10 weeks. But now, without knowing what the gestational age is, because there's no ultrasound, there's no in-person visit, women can be using it at gestational ages far beyond that. And when you get to gestational ages in the second trimester after 13 weeks, you're talking a one out of three failure rate, a 33% or more need for surgical completion. And that's something that the websites aren't telling and Planned Parenthood is likely not telling patients their risk increases as the gestational age increases. So let me explain that for our listeners who may not understand. So a, a woman takes the first pill, um, she's past 10 or 12 or 13 weeks, and the baby dies but remains inside of her. And that's a very dangerous situation, correct? So she would need at that point to complete the procedure through surgery. Not if, not only if the baby dies and is retained, but even if the baby passes, but Fragments of the placenta are retained. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in fact, even in the situation where there's no placenta, the mifeprex, the, the abortion drug, interferes with the ability of the uterus to stop bleeding. It interferes with the spiral artery contraction. So you, you can get massive hemorrhage. And I've, I've reviewed adverse event reports of women who have had 10 units of blood transfused. <laughs> That's the kind of hemorrhage that you get with major motor vehicle accidents. And this is the kind of hemorrhaging that can happen, especially as the woman increases in gestational age because there's more places in the uterus because it's bigger more places to bleed from. She has a greater and greater risk of hemorrhage. Here's what I'm afraid of. You have a situation now where the culture is pushing chemical abortion. Um, we are not hearing about the side of the, the complications. The, you know, the FDA unregulating it is a signal to everybody that it's a very safe drug, that that's how they should use it. And now we're going to have young women, inexperienced young women, imagine 16-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 20-year-olds uh, uh, by themselves hemorrhaging in a bathroom alone, maybe not with a friend near them to take him to the hospital. I mean, I just the thought of that just makes me, it just shivers my heart to think of all these poor young women being led down this path. Well, I agree. And the whole uh, complicity of the media with a false narrative, Mifeprex is not a safe drug. And it's not pop a pill and poof, the pregnancy's gone. This is a really difficult procedure, and it's forcing the separation of the baby at a time when the baby isn't naturally designed to separate. So it's painful, it's long, and it's dangerous. And there's there's three other problems that we haven't even touched on, which are really important. Well, if we're almost woman, out of time, Dr. Oh, Harrison, okay. but if you could tell me, I would really like to hear them before we finish. Sure. If a woman is Rh negative and she does not receive Rogam, she can become Rh sensitized. And then she's at great risk of future miscarriages. Wow. And if a woman is just getting this drug online, you have no idea whether or not she has been screened for sex trafficking and abuse. There's no way to screen her for sex trafficking and abuse via a telemedicine visit because there's no way of controlling who's present in the room. So this is enabling sex traffickers and abusers to to sure. do their to ply their trade. There's another thing I thought of is that if people are ordering them online, no one's regulating these online companies. They could be ordering anything of any dosage. There's no way to well, regulate what, what you're actually receiving in the mail. 
there was a study that looked exactly at that problem and found that a large number of the pills were uh, arrived crushed or there were no, uh, there was uh, half of them were gone and missing. So you can't, you can't at all control. There's no way to control, quality control what they're actually getting. Well, this is terrible news to start our year on, <laughs> Dr. Harrison. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but I want to thank you for telling us this because all of us know young people. We know some of us are young people and, and we need to be looking out for each other, looking out for young women and, uh, and, and protecting them from, from a very from a very ugly reality of uh, chemical abortion and the way it's been pushed on the unsuspecting women of America. So thank you for doing this yeah. for us, Dr. Harrison. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation God the Father has with God the Son in this Sunday's Gospel. As we ponder the scene of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John and its consequences in your life and mine. The liturgical celebration of the baptism of the Lord Jesus culminates the celebration of the Christmas season. It symbolically finishes Jesus' three decades of hidden life as God the Father announces at the Jordan what was concealed from the beginning from almost everyone except from Mary and Joseph, a few shepherds, the wise men, Simeon and Anna, and a handful of others. That Jesus is God's own beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Celebration of Jesus' baptism culminates the Christmas season in another way as well, because it points to our baptism, which is the means by which we enter into the saving work Jesus was born into our world to accomplish. We've been singing in Hark the Herald Angels Sing since Christmas Day. Mild he lays his glory by, born that no man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Christ, through his incarnation, has made it possible for us through baptism to enter into the mystery and meaning of Christmas in the immortality, resurrection, and second birth that that baptism promises in this world and forever. Jesus entered the waters of the Jordan precisely in order to bless those waters so that they could bring about this second birth so that what John's baptism pointed to could actually be accomplished. John's baptism indicated our and others' need for spiritual cleansing, for the forgiveness of sin, for the triumph over the death to which sin leads. But John's baptism couldn't actually take those sins away or deliver those goods. This is the truth to which John the Baptist pointed to in Sunday's Gospel when he contrasted his baptism with the one Jesus in the church Jesus founded would carry out. I am baptizing you with water, John said, but one mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When Jesus entered the water to be baptized, he sanctified the water so that the sign of washing could actually bring about the interior purification it signified, make it possible for us to be raised and born anew. But the baptism Jesus would inaugurate would do far more than that. It would enable the sons of earth to enter into God's very life. So we see in the Sunday's Gospel, when Jesus was baptized, three things happened. First, heaven was opened. Second, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And third, a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The event of Jesus' baptism gave us a glimpse into heaven, into the very life of God. God the Father and God the Son manifest in this world their relationship with God the Son that has existed in heaven since the beginning. God the Father pronounces Jesus' much-loved and all-pleasing Son. 
Great Trinitarian theologians and saints like St. Augustine have explained the Trinity as love. God the Father is the eternal lover. God the Son is the eternal beloved. And the Holy Spirit is the eternal love between the Father and the Son, so strong as to take on personality. When God the Father speaks at the Jordan, pronouncing Jesus as his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased, he's just making explicit what has always been and will always be within the Blessed Trinity. Similarly, when the Holy Spirit comes down from the Father in heaven upon the Son, whose assumed humanity was wet in the Jordan, it's just a manifestation of the love between the Father and the Son, whom the Holy Spirit has been since the, before the foundation of the world. Therefore, at the baptism of Jesus, we're able to eavesdrop on the eternal, consequential conversation that takes place among the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. St. John refers to God in his prologue as the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was before God, and the Logos was God. We normally translate Logos as word, but as the future Pope Benedict XVI wrote in a 1980s work called Feast of Faith, Logos can also be translated as conversation, as an interpersonal trialogue between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hear and see an echo of that eternal three-person dialogue at Jesus' baptism. But what's incredible is that in baptism, we're able to enter into that conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three things that happen in the baptism of Jesus occur in our baptism. First, heaven is opened. We're not just purified of sin, but made ears of heaven and eternal life. In entering the Jordan, Jesus converted it into what he would later call in his dialogue with the woman at the well in Samaria, living water that would well up within us to eternal life. Because as our bodies are sprinkled or immersed on the outside, on the inside we are filled with Jesus, that living water. Second, the Holy Spirit comes down upon us to dwell within us and make us his temple. The cleansing that happens in baptism of the Holy Spirit in a fire is precisely to make us an abode of God so that he might dwell in us and us in him, not just here in this world, but forever. The Holy Spirit incorporates us into the mystical body of Christ and we're mysteriously inducted into the interpersonal conversation who is the Holy Trinity. And third, God the Father turns toward us, incorporated through baptism into Jesus' Son and His humanity, and says, This is my beloved Son, this is my much-loved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. In baptism, full as we are with Jesus the living water and the Holy Spirit the purifying fire, we're filled with the love of God the Father by our communion with God the Son and our receiving the Holy Spirit who is the love between the Father and the Son. St. John would exclaim to the Christians in the early church, See what love the Father has bestowed on us, that we may be called children of God. Yet so we are. We're not just called God's children, we become his children. In baptism, we are changed into God the Father's much beloved sons and daughters. Who, 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 and he takes pleasure in us just as anyone does in the presence of a beloved. And the work of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in us as a result of baptism is meant to help us always be pleasing to him. This is what we will ask God the Father in the opening prayer of Sunday's Mass. We will turn to him and implore God who, when Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, and as the Holy Spirit descended upon him, solemnly declared him your beloved Son. Grant that your children by adoption, reborn of water and the Spirit, may always be well-pleasing to you. 
We will always be well-pleasing to God the Father by living out the reality of our baptism, the reality of our incorporation in Christ as Son, the reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire and zeal, the reality of being set free from sin so that we might live a new holy life and pass through the open portal of heaven. That's why the solemnity of the baptism of the Lord is always meant to be a time for us to reflect on the awesome reality of our own baptism. On the day of our baptism, we could say we won the greatest lottery of all time. Not for any merit of our own, but by God's grace and for those of us baptized as infants, the faith of our parents, we were brought to the baptismal font, changed inwardly, and made joint ears with Christ to the kingdom of heaven. We became members of the divine royal family. We were given God's own immortal life inside of us and made capable of living in a holy communion with him. That's why the day of our baptism is by far the most important day of our life. St. Louis IX, King of France in the 13th century, always signed his official documents, not Louis, Roi, or King de France, but Louis de Poissy. When those in his court asked him the reason for this practice, he simply said, Poissy is the place where I was baptized. This is more important to me than the Cathedral of Rheims, where I was crowned king. It's a greater thing to be a child of God than to be ruler of a kingdom. The earthly kingdom I shall lose at death. But the other will be my passport to eternal glory. He recognized the importance of the day of baptism. That's why, as Pope Francis never ceases to beg us, we should know and celebrate the day of our baptism. Thank God for the gift he has given. Pray for the person who baptized us and for our parents and godparents. That's why we should never cease to ponder the reality of what occurred on that day. When we rejected Satan, all his empty promises and evil works, professed our faith and trust in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, in communion with all the saints. On that day, the sacred minister prayed over our ears and lips so that we might hear his word and proclaim his faith in a, well, in a way well-pleasing to God. We're covered with a white garment, an external sign of what happens to our soul in baptism, and instructed to take that white garment unstained to the eternal life of heaven as our vesture for the eternal wedding feast. Our baptismal candle was lit from the Easter candle, a sign that we are now burning with the light of Christ risen from the dead. And we were told with our parents and godparents to help us to keep that light burning with the flame of faith like the wise virgins until Christ the bridegroom returns. And then we processed to the altar and prayed together the Our Father, His beloved, well-pleasing daughters and son of, sons of God, together with Jesus and moved inwardly by the Holy Spirit, who helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. We celebrate this reality in the Feast of the Lord's Baptism as an anticipation of the celebration we should have every year on the anniversary of the day the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit came down, and God the Father pronounced us His beloved child. The most important day of our life finished around the altar as a sign that the sacrament of baptism always is meant to lead to the sacrament of the Eucharist, where God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit seeks to bring us evermore into the divine consequential conversation. As we prepare for Mass this Sunday, let us with gratitude renew the promises of our baptism, clean our white garments through the sacrament of confession, turn up the flame of the baptismal candle we've become, open our ears to hear God's word and our lips to proclaim our faith as we thank God for the awesome gift of being with Jesus, his beloved sons and daughters, and beg for the grace to be maximally pleasing to him in this life so that we will have the privilege with all the saints to enter heaven, which baptism opens, and please and praise God forever. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 